Lazarus. Do you know how much it pained me to stop halfway through last week? I was like, Ugh, I just got to finish this. But that's all right. I mean, you know, we'll just back up a little bit. You were waving at me? Oh. <laughs> oh, I see. We'll back up a little bit. I'm going to back up just to gain the momentum, a little bit of momentum here, and just read through part of the scripture we covered last week so that we catch the context, which, as you know, is all important. So here in John chapter 11, we see that Jesus is at Bethany beyond the Jordan. It's also called Bethabara, and uh, uh, just a small place on the riverbank on the eastern side of the Jordan River, the place where he was baptized. It's interesting to me that he starts his ministry there and he wraps up his ministry there uh, for the most part. I mean, he's at the end of his ministry. It's less than three months when, uh, from the time he would go to the cross. And by the time we start chapter 12, it'll be six days. It'll be the last week and the rest of the, the, most of the rest of the time in the Gospel of John will cover that, uh, some after the resurrection. But uh, anyway, it's interesting to me. And, and he was there and many people were coming to believe. Many people were coming to a, a, an understanding of what he was about, what he was saying, the things that he was putting forth, this gospel of the kingdom. And he was gaining popularity, but he was also... Uh, gaining a lot of criticism. There was a lot of division, a lot of people undecided because we've talked about it a number of times. He forces people to make a choice. There's no sitting on the fence. There is no fence, but there's no staying kind of neutral about the things of God. And, and, And it's the same now as it was then. And So then, as he's there with his men, uh, word comes to him, probably a runner. They had, they were guys, couriers. Um, You know, they didn't jump in their Volkswagen and drive on over. They ran, and this was about 20 miles away. And this guy came uh, to Jesus from Bethany, not Now, this is the other Bethany that's just on the eastern side of Jerusalem. It's on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives, just over the hill from coming down the Mount of Olives and looking out and seeing the Temple Mount spread out before you. It's an amazing place. Anyway, they're in Bethany, and and his friends, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, lived there. It was a place where he would kind of be able to come and and, and relax, really. They were part of his inner circle. They were very close. And so uh, he gets word that Lazarus is sick, and his response was to stay two days longer where he was, which is remarkable in itself because you would think, well, he would just pick up and go. And it's interesting to me, just as a sidelight, that very often when we pray, uh, we can become discouraged because we don't see God do what we think he will do. And yet, take courage through this story, through this account, because he is working. His response and his, his, it was an active work that he was doing was to wait. And, and, and we got to realize that, guys. He doesn't just jump to. Very often, sometimes he does. But very often, we can become discouraged and think, well, there's nothing happening in this thing I've been praying for. And yet, Jesus was in control 100% of the time then. 100% of the time now. And so he waits and then he gets his guys and, and he's on his way and his men thinks, they think that Lazarus is sleeping. He says, Lazarus is asleep and I'm going to go wake him up. And 
And they said, well, you know, he'll get better. He's just sick. And uh, they thought he was temporarily sick. sick and Jesus knew he was temporarily dead. But <laughs> the point is, is they go back and, and Jesus tells them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Now, there are other accounts of Jesus raising people from the dead in the New Testament. I think of Jairus's uh, daughter here in, in uh, the other gospels. And it, but she was dead for a very short time. Somebody could have made the case that, well, maybe he just resuscitated that person, not raised that person from the dead. Well, here, this is very different because Lazarus has been dead by the time Jesus gets there for four days. And his body would have been in quite a state of decomposition. And yes, I decided not to go into the specifics on that. I, I did study them and take my word for it. I could just gross you out. And we're going to have a barbecue after church. And I really don't want to do that. So... Anyway, uh, it's an awesome miracle that he does, though, when he raises Lazarus from the dead. But he also gives us some real good foundation when he talks with Martha and Mary. So we're going to back up here to verse 20 is where we're going to start. Uh, and then we'll, we'll I'm just going to read through this and then we'll launch where we left off last week. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him and Mary was sitting at the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now Martha here recites uh, her understanding of the doctrine of the resurrection, uh, but it doesn't change the fact that her brother is dead. And we talked about that briefly last week. There's a time for doctrine. There's a time for hauling out your Bible and going down the scriptures. Usually when somebody's hurting, especially if they're grieving, there's a time to simply mourn with those that mourn, to weep with those that weep, and to just be sensitive and to be compassionate. And, and there is a time for bringing comfort from God's word. I found generally when I'm with people, that's usually not on the front end. It's something that I just want to go and I just want to wrap my arms around them and, and cry with them. And uh, there's a time again. So Martha's, she's not really encouraged by this. She is, like I said, she's looking at Jesus and she's saying, you know, you're, yeah, I understand the doctrine of the resurrection, Jesus. But Jesus corrects her in verse 25. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. It's not a doctrine, Martha. It's me. I am the embodiment of these truths. It's not words on a page here. It's me. I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Uh, and again, I, I look at this and I just picture him just, just piercing into her and saying, do you believe this? Do you believe? And over and over and over again, guys, we see in the Gospel of John, that is the question that's put forth. Do you believe this? Very often in my life, in my walk with the Lord, I'm challenged. He brings me to places of new territory, so to speak, and, and it's, he will challenge my faith, and he'll say, do you believe this? I think about Chuck and Joanne with what they were sharing with us. I mean, there are parts of their relationship with the Lord that have been deepened, and their faith in his ability to save souls, I'm sure, has been greatly expanded because we live in a culture that it's very difficult it wasn't when I got saved and when you got saved, perhaps, but it's become very difficult for people to respond to the gospel. It's like, Lord, just pour out your spirit, revive people's hearts, wake people up, as I mentioned. And yet he challenges, challenges us, doesn't he? He challenges our faith. He brings us to places where 
there's no way I can see the end of this except if God moves, and then he moves, which is what he's doing here. So he's trying to get Martha to think beyond the theological and to make it personal. We talked about that last week. I won't belabor that, belabor that a lot here uh, with her. And she says in verse 27, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who is come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went her way. That's where we stopped last week because I, I found it remarkable that, you know, they're having this dialogue and she basically is not, I don't believe she's getting satisfaction from him. She is a big pile of hurt at this point. She's just grieved. And if you have experienced grief, you know what I'm talking about. It overwhelms. Uh, grief, especially when it's somebody close to you like that, uh, I mean, out of nowhere, it can just totally knock off your pins. And, and Jesus is, it's, he's not being harsh with her, he, and he's not being doctrinal with her. He's coming alongside, and he's being compassionate. We'll see that as the story unfolds more. Uh, but this is why he delayed. I, I can't stress that enough. He delayed to enlarge these people's faith that he had the ability to take care of the situation even when it involved death, the greatest enemy of humanity. And so here he is, he's, uh, he's, he's coming alongside. And, and I, I, I kind of relate to Martha here and Mary and, and the people. Uh, I know in times of grief in my life, that I read a book once that Greg Laurie wrote, and in it, one of the things that he said, because his son was killed uh, on a freeway in Southern California a number of years back, and, and uh, I read uh, this book that, that he wrote. As a matter of fact, I bought a number of copies and gave them out over the years to people who were experiencing grief. Uh, but he talked about there's an inconsolable longing for that person. Uh, that person that has died, that person that has gone. And, and, and yes, is, is absolutely bereft when you know that person didn't have a relationship with Christ because you don't like to think about their, their time is over. Their chances to come to him are done. A very serious thing. Uh, and yet, even knowing someone is a believer, uh, there's a longing for that person. That they're just not there anymore. You just want to hear their voice. You want to see them. You want to experience. You want to just, if I had just five more minutes, how many times I've heard that over the years? And yet, Jesus is here to show them that he is the master over death. And, and he's going he's gonna to demonstrate that with his, these sisters. So the rest of verse 28, and secretly uh, Jesus, or Mary, or Martha went and called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. Now, why would she do that secretly? Well, you've got to remember, the Jews are pretty heated up. There was a standing order uh, to get Jesus to bring him in. They, and, and they reinforce that by the end of this chapter again. But it was very dangerous for Jesus at this juncture in his ministry. He's on the other side of the Jordan River at this point. Uh, before he came, uh, because the Jews were heated up. They, we looked at chapters and chapters of conflict between him and the Jewish leaders. I mean, standing in the temple court saying, you are of your father, the devil. I mean, just shouting that at these guys. And, and they just set in their jaws against him, and they could not wait to get rid of him because he was such a threat to, that, to, to their deal, really. So as soon as Mary hears that, that as soon as she heard that, she arose and quickly came to him, to Jesus. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the town, verse 30, but was in the place where Martha had met him. So here's Mary. Again, I, I love to see these two sisters' character come out, Martha the busy one and Mary the contemplative one. And she was sitting in the house and she was, just simp she was simply mourning. She was grieving. 
She hears that Jesus is coming and she immediately responds. Uh, verse 31, And the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose quickly and went out, they followed her saying, She's going to the tomb to weep there. And then when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him and she fell down at his feet. This is the same as in Luke chapter 10 and in John chapter 12. Mary is at his feet. She's there whether it's the mountaintop or the valley. Uh, she's there in great times and she's there in times of sorrow. She knows the value of spending time at Jesus' feet because she finds intimacy with the Lord there. She finds assurance at his feet. Verse 32 again, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, I look at this, and, and the first thing that comes to mind is maybe she was reading her sister's mail. I, I don't know, because they're saying the exact same thing. We'll talk about that a little bit more as we go along, because the other people were saying the exact same thing. They had had four days of scratching their head going, where on earth is Jesus? How come he hasn't shown up? You know, if he'd have shown up, he would have made sure this didn't happen. And they had had a lot of time to chatter about and, and to contemplate and, and to come to some conclusions that weren't necessarily right about Jesus. And so she says the exact same thing, no doubt uh, a product of conversations that she'd had with her sister, with other people in the house. So if, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Therefore, verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, the Jews that came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. This is significant. When it says here, and, and Jesus does this twice in this passage, uh, literally the Greek word translates to snort with indignation. Interesting. He is, he's getting upset. It does, does, did Jesus get upset? Yes, he got upset here. This upset him. His friend's death upset him. But it, it went deeper than that, gang. It went a lot deeper. And so he snorts with indignation. And it's not due to a lack of faith, but he's disgusted with sin and with death. And yet he's fully, you got to remember, this is a great illustrated, great passage that illustrates the humanity of Jesus and the deity of Jesus. As God in the flesh, he has power over death, but he is also a human being, and he doesn't like coming into this scene with all of these people terribly beside themselves with sorrow and grief. He feels it. And I know we're talking about feelings, a little nebulous there, but he experiences their grief. He is, he is as a man, coming into this and experiencing the same things that you or I would if we come into a house full of people that are mourning the loss of someone very close. I know, Linda, you went through that just recently. And, and yeah, there, there's, there's a place of, of just, wow, what do you do? What do you say? There's nothing that you can say that's going to make it okay. And yet, you know, if that person was a believer, there's rejoicing. And yet, there's also a sorrow that's overwhelming at times. And so, Jesus, he... he snorts with indignation. He groans in his spirit. He's troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. The next verse, um, very powerful verse. See Jesus in all of his humanity. Jesus wept. He just broke down and began to cry. He was experiencing death. He, was not, he knew that his time was coming and it was not very far off. But he was experiencing what the people that were with Mary and Martha and Mary and Martha were experiencing. They were mourning. They were grieved. 
And he was looking at the effects of death in this family, these women beside themselves. He was looking at the effects of death for humanity. I'm absolutely convinced that when he wept, he wept over more. Yes, he wept for Lazarus, but he was weeping for death and for sin in general because it was never God's design. From the foundations of the earth, it was never God's design for death to be part of the human experience. When he gave man, when he created Adam and Eve and gave them dominion over the earth, death wasn't part of it. Remember he said on the day that you eat of that fruit that you're not supposed to eat, you will surely what? Die. That wasn't supposed to be what they did. Of course, we know, of course, that they did. They, they sinned. They fell. Humanity fell as a result. And death entered the world. And we're told in Romans that Jesus, as the second Adam, was the one who came and set things right that went terribly wrong back in the garden. And so, yes, death is part of what we experience, but it's because we live in a fallen world. This body is sub subject to decay. This body is subject to, it's, to futility is how it's put in the Bible. And, and yes, we know that we'll get a new body that when we're in glory, that we'll have a glorified body. We'll have a body that's designed for heaven. And yet in this life, death is part of it. And Jesus wept over death in general because he sees the toll that it has taken on humanity in, in a general sense. Interesting though, one of the things that, that kind of got me scratching my head, first time I taught this years back, but um, was... All right, Jesus knows. He's already told the guys, I'm going to go wake him up. I'm going to go raise Lazarus from the dead. And so you could look at that and go, well, all right, why is he crying? Uh, he's weeping here. And, and, but he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows the story has a happy ending. So why is he weeping? The other Gospels, uh, when we, again, I mentioned Jairus' daughter. Uh, when he goes into the house there, uh, I was looking at it in Mark, and he goes in, Jairus says, you know, my daughter's sick, you know, you got to come, and, and, you know, while he's on his way, she dies, and then he walks into the house, and everybody's weeping, everybody's mourning, everybody, and, and he says, stop crying, she's just asleep. Uh, I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially what he does. He tells them to stop crying in those, in those accounts, in the other Gospels, and they ridicule him, and then he uh, raises her from the dead. But remember, Jesus allowed Lazarus to die. And he allowed those that loved him to mourn. And he lamented with them in the pain of this mortal world. And he holds the power to raise the dead and to, to eliminate the grief of these, his beloved friends. But first, he dwelt with them in that grief. When we go through things, do you have an attitude that God is somehow far off? That, well, because he's God, he really just kind of understands, but he doesn't experience what I experience. No, he experiences it. He knows our sorrows. He knows our pain. He knows the things we go through and, and I believe that his response is he is still 100% human and 100% God. Yes, he has a glorified body, but he still has the marks. I take great comfort in the fact that he went through this with Lazarus. He knew he was going to raise him from the dead. He knows he's going to raise us from the dead that belong to him. That, does that mean that he doesn't 
that he thinks, well, you know, I know the ending. That's fine. And that stuff they're going through, it's no big deal. No, it is a big deal. He walks through those things with us. He says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll go through the valleys with you. I, he doesn't, I've mentioned before, he never promises to keep us from those things. He promises to walk through them with us in those things. Big difference. Part of counting the cost of belonging to Christ is to know that we will go through things. And yet, we have a great high priest who has entered the veil, has gone behind, the, he's gone before us, and, and he's paved the way for us to be able to go through things in a way of knowing that he's got this. So yes, he cries, but he also knows the outcome here. He knows what he's about to do. They didn't, and, and yet, so he's experiencing their grief. Verse 36, and the Jews said, see how he loved him. Over and over again in the Gospel of John, and this is no different, they're not catching the significance of Jesus' actions and words. Uh, we've looked at that so many times since we started teaching through this Gospel months ago that it falls short. They look at the physical, and he's doing something in the spiritual, but they look at the physical, and they don't connect the dots, as it were. And, and so they say, oh, see how, how much he loved the guy. And, and it was so much beyond that. Verse 37, some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying again? <laughs> These guys were talking. You know, this can be a dangerous thing. They were coming to the wrong conclusion about Jesus because they were talking about things that really, if you ran them out to a logical conclusion, wouldn't make sense. They knew the power that Jesus had. And so they get into this conjecture, and yeah, yeah they're in pain, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to cut them slack on that. They're going through it. I mean, but when they're getting together, that over that four days, and I want to be careful not to add too much here, but you have to realize they didn't sit silently for four days, and everybody that Jesus encounters in this account is saying the exact same thing, the same words. Couldn't he have just, if he'd have been here, and... and you know, I remember, uh, well, even yesterday, I, uh, some people in my life that I've known for many years that, that sort of bailed on Christianity as we know it. They went into this Hebrew roots movement. And they sent me an article yesterday, and it's because they hang around with other people that are saying the same things, as though that validates them somehow. If it's not here, I really am not interested in going down that road. And, and so she sent me a deal yesterday, and it was all about the original manuscripts of the Bible were in Hebrew. Two words for that. Actually, there's a hyphen, hog, wash. Um, they were in Greek. And, and they are. They, I mean, there's 40,000 fragments, and I cannot seem to express strongly enough to my friend, you are going down a very dangerous road. And this whole premise now was that, well, the scriptures that we have have been corrupted. Well, I heard that before when I was in the Mormon church, and that's not right either. I mean, because I grew up be believing that the Bible wasn't reliable. And yet, in the studies that I've had over the years, I mean, there is nothing more reliable than the word of God. So we, again, my point is, is that we need to be careful that we don't start adding our opinions to these things I try very hard when I'm teaching. There are times where I'll give an opinion. And I will tell you, this is my opinion. And I may not always do that, but I try very hard to do that because I want to stick to the text. I want to stick to what does this say? I want to expand on what does this say? I don't want to get into conjecture. I don't want to get into maybes. I want, because if, if I went with what she was telling me, then I couldn't trust the scripture and my salvation would be hanging in the balance. No, not going to go there. 
That's part of why we teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, through the Bible. You have to do that in order to get the full counsel of the Word of God. And if we stick to that, then we are sticking to the things that are important. We're not going to get caught up in what everybody else is saying. That's what these people were doing. And this, I'll tell you what, it is a fertile garden for bad doctrine to come about. So I uh, just encourage you guys, be careful when people start offering conjecture about spiritual things. Make sure it lines up with this. Okay, that was a little soapbox I got on. <laughs> but it's true. Verse 38, and Jesus is again groaning in himself, uh, same thing. He came to the tomb, and it was a cave, and a stone laid against it. So the cave was a sarf- sarcophagus. Uh, in, in those days, it was a, uh, they actually had this all kind of engineered. There were shelves in the cave, and different people in the family, it would be a family or community type of deal. And it, it, interesting, the word sarcophagus itself translates flesh eater. Isn't that a fun word? Um, yeah, sarks is flesh, and then the, 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 the esophagus part is sort of like the esophagus that we eat. We use our esophagus. It's the same. It's the, the connecting of those words is flesh eater. It's literally how it translates. Because what they would do is when someone died, they would put them into the sarcophagus, into the cave. There was a stone in a, in a sort of a little trough that they could put against it, very much like when Jesus died, uh, except his was a brand new tomb from Joseph of Arimathea, unused. This was probably used. And so they would put, you know, Joe's or whoever's, body in there and it would decay it would take about two years and then they'd be able to come in and the, all that would be left is bones the flesh would be eaten <laughs> and it's kind of gross but that's what how it went so and then what they would do is they would take a big jar and they would put all of the bones in a jar and put it off to the side and make room for the next generation or for the next person in the family and so these were sort of repurposed tombs that they used and th- that was the process that they went through so Lazarus is in one of these tombs in one of these sarcophagus they said it was a cave which meant it was in the side of a mountain or a hill and a stone laid against it And so Jesus said in verse 39, he said, take away the stone. Now, we know the end from the beginning. We know he's going to raise this guy from the dead, right? So it's like, it makes sense that he'd say, take away the stone. Nobody knew that. He had never done this. And Martha, (coughs) the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench. He stinketh. He's been dead four days. She's supposing that he wants to just go in and lay eyes on Lazarus one last time. You know, it's not in her mind. I mean, he's already tried to explain to her what he's about, and she's just like, yeah, 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 I, I know the doctrines, yeah, yeah. But, but now he's saying, you know, move the stone. And she's, you know, that's really not a good idea, Jesus. No, it, you know, it, it's really not a good idea. You know, you know, dead, really dead. Four days, really, really dead. Going to stink. You know, maybe flies are, you know, you don't want to do this. And she's trying to act wisely with him because, again, she's missing what he's going to do. And remember, this is a hot environment. In this part of Israel, it's warm. It's warmer than here. And uh, it wouldn't take long for his body to start to rot, to decompose. And that's what it was doing. Sin was taking its toll because, again, that won't happen with the body that's, that's set apart for us to inhabit when we shed this one. Verse 40, And Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe that you would see the glory of God? And then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, 
Interesting. When Jesus prayed, his eyes opened looking up. (laughs) Try that in a prayer meeting sometime. Uh, Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, some people have wrongly accused Jesus of being hyper-pious in this. Oh, Father. No, that's not it at all. He's giving instruction on prayer in the middle of raising Lazarus from the dead. He's saying, look, I know you always hear me. I perfectly believe that you are going to do what you're going to do because I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing this for your glory. And I'm saying this out loud because I want the other people to understand that this is really the cutting edge. This is where it happens. So he's giving us a window into his dealings with the Father and the communion, the deep intimacy that he has with the Father in this moment. In verse 43, now when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. I gave that its own slide. You know why? This just blows me away. I, you know, I just, I, I so hope that when we get to heaven that we can watch reruns or just look at it again or something. I got to see this. I mean, this guy, uh, let's go to the next slide. This guy was laying in the tomb. This is, uh, um, oops, all right, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> this guy, we look at, we think about the whole scene in this passage is from outside the tomb. Think about, this is, a, it, this is actually, it's a, a um, statue, it's, uh, so it was a carving. What's, what's the name? Yeah, anyway. A sculpture, yeah. This, boy, that word left me. Anyway, it's a sculpture. It's called Lazarus Come Forth. And I, I was looking at this. I was just kind of messing around on the internet when I was studying for t- today. And, and I was looking at this and I thought, you know, what would it have been like inside the tomb? I mean, we see the whole thing played out from outside the tomb, and that's fine. And again, I don't want to start adding a bunch of weird stuff to the scripture, and yet there was something going on inside of that tomb. I mean, here's a guy, like we said, who really dead. And all of a sudden, when Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, his body knits back together. He opens his eyes, and I don't know if it was covered. This shows his eyes, it's some artist concept, and sometimes I I sort of resist showing stuff like this, but I just just really got caught up in thinking, what would it have been like for Lazarus? He opens his eyes, he's like, last I remember, I felt really sick. Where am I? You know, and I mean, that whole deal, like when you wake up, you don't know where you are. Yeah, that's that like times a hundred for this guy, and and perhaps he had been in glory in in Abraham's bosom because Jesus hadn't emptied that yet, and that's where people went, the faithful went when they died, and he's like enjoying things and just having a great time in Abraham's bosom, and then he's gone, you know. Uh, so again, it's fun to conjecture about some of these things. I don't know what really happened, but I do know that this guy woke up. He more than woke up. He came back. Uh, The Puritans used to teach that the reason why uh, Lazarus, why Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, why he used his name, why he didn't just say, come forth, because everybody knew it was Lazarus in there, but uh, the Puritans used to say that if he didn't say Lazarus' name, all of the bodies around would have come forth. (laughs) And so he really had a mess on his hands then. But uh, anyway, it's just fun to think about. Uh, Two things to note here. The first is Jesus prayed. 
The power which flowed through him was not his. Uh, it was God's. Uh, interesting, there's a theologian by the name of uh, F.L. Gaudet that talks about miracles. He says, miracles are just so many answered prayers. I like that. Um, the second thing is that Jesus sought only the glory of God, only the glory of his Father. That's significant. Uh, he didn't do it to glorify himself, to show off. Look, you know, look at me, lightning bolts jumping off my fingers. Um, it was like when Elijah prayed. Uh, in, in 1 Kings 18, Elijah says, it, when he's talking about, uh, when, when he was dealing with the 400 prophets of Baal, when he like, called down fire from heaven, yeah, that was like to have been there too. Uh, well, on one side of it, not the other. But uh, he says, answer me, O Lord, answer me so that this people may know that you, the Lord, are God. Uh, again, doing it totally for God's glory, for God to be seen in the midst of this thing. Totally remarkable for these people. Everything that Jesus did was due to the power of God and designed for the glory of God. Everything, we've seen that over and over and over again. He said, I am here because my Father sent me. And I do nothing of myself, only that which the Father gives me to do. He is totally representing that start to finish in his ministry. Going on in verse 44. Oh, we're out of time. I don't want to continue this again. Um, we'll take a couple more minutes here. And he who had died came out, uh, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Now this is the exact same description as Jesus' grave clothes. It's what they did in the first century when they buried someone, when they, well, when they put someone in the tomb. Uh, he would have had a separate cloth for his head, for his face, and, and then you know, his whole body would have been covered with linen. They used ointments and, and uh, spices to pack the body. I mean, he would have looked very much like what we saw. He would have, this guy coming out was a mummy. He was mummified. He was in the process of, <laughs> you know, he'd been embalmed. And so he comes out with his grave clothes. His face is wrapped with a cloth, cloth and Jesus says to him, loose him and let him go. Why would Jesus have to do that? Why would he have to tell him that? Because their jaws are on the ground, that's why. They would be completely undone by this. They had no idea what Jesus was about to do, and then he did it, and they were paralyzed. They were like, are you serious? Really? And they're watching Lazarus come bumbling out. I mean, the guy can't see, he can't walk, he's all packed, he's got bandages hanging everywhere, and, and Jesus has to tell them. Un unbind him. Let him go. Uh, take that stuff off. He can't move. I, I just think it's great. Now, Mary and Martha were probably elated at this point. I mean, Yahoo, our brother lives? Seriously? I don't think Lazarus was so much. He was already crossed over, man. He was already on the other side. And he got pulled back. I mean, yeah, he, he's sitting at the table later. We'll look at that. Uh, he's sitting at the table, and, and just his presence would advertise the power of God from there forward for the rest of his life. And so he became a powerful witness, a powerful testimony. But this was so overwhelmingly powerful that the Pharisees wanted to kill now Lazarus too. We'll see that as we go along. So 
you know, he had spoken to these guys of the resurrection. Remember back in chapter 5, Jesus says in verse 28, says, don't marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. So evidently, that's something he does. He calls them by name. Think about that. Is he going to call me by name? Going to call you by name? He says, all. I think I'm kind of part of all. So are you. Anyway, we'll hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Verse 45, then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and seen the things that Jesus did believed in him. That's the point. He was always working these for the the express purpose of bringing people to faith, bringing them to a deeper understanding, a greater knowledge, a more intimate relationship with him. That's why he waited two days. He couldn't have done this. These people would, I mean, this is remarkable. This is, and, and there are, this is of many, many scriptures in the Bible people are skeptical over. This is a hot one for skeptics. People that have trouble believing that Jesus had power over life, life and death, that he had the ability to perform miracles, that God does miracles in the Bible. Man, they just wrestle with this. I read a couple of their accounts and I went, oh, I'm getting tired. I don't want to read that. Let's read good stuff here because it, it's, yeah, it's, is it debatable? Of course it is. But you want to know something? And this is true of everything. This is an absolute true principle. And it's one that you can just tuck into your brain and, and understand. He always, always gives room for unbelief. In the, in the things that you see in God's word, you will see every time that Jesus acts, he is giving room for unbelief. Why? Because having a relationship with him is a choice. It's an act of my will. Yeah, does he have something to do with it? Does he know who's going to choose? Yeah, we're not going to go there. But, uh, boy, I could rabbit trail on that until 1230. But I want to eat too, so I'll, I'll just resist. But it says here that Many of them came to him and believed in him. Verse 46, and this is where we're going to stop. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus had done. The unbelievers. So there's that division again. I look at this. I read this and I go, tattletales. My gosh, you guys ever get enough? Come on, you're going to go tell them what he did. But yeah, they did. Because they were really hung on their thing. They did not. They were, they had to sort of forcibly choose in their own hearts not to go with what they had just seen. You see a guy walk out of a grave, you're going to think the guy that did it is pretty, kind of pretty special, maybe? Yeah. But not these guys. Anyway, as we wrap up, it's still that way 2,000 years later. It's still people that walk away, yeah. Nah, hogwash. Nah, nah, nah. I'm not going to go with that. But there are people that, that, like what Chuck and Joanne experienced, yeah. Jesus, yeah. You don't have to convince somebody in Africa about the existence of God like you do here. Excuse me. That's a huge battle that's already, that you don't even have to engage in. They believe in God. They just want to know, what can he do for me? And, I mean, because these people are, I mean, they're beyond poor. I mean, it's just a whole different culture. They don't have anything near what we have to compete for our affections for God. Uh, for these people, 
They were choosing not to, but there were many that came to faith, many that came to believe. We'll see that in chapter 12. We'll finish up chapter 11 next week briefly. It won't take long to finish. But, and then we'll get into chapter 12 with the triumphal entry and when Jesus comes in for the last time, he comes in as the Lamb of God uh, and comes in and presents himself to Israel for inspection for four days before he's killed after that. And then virtually, uh, wow, how many chapters? I don't remember how many chapters, but... Uh, all the way through chapter 20 with the res or the crucifixion from from chapter 12 through 20 it's all about the last week of the lord's life and i'll tell you what i gotta be straight up with you i mean i love teaching all of this i really love teaching the part of gospel the gospel of john after this this is a major shift that we're going to see when we get into chapter 12 with this last week because it is rich i mean yeah he squares off the religious leaders i mean that's just a given <laughs> Whenever you read, and then the Jews showed up, you go, okay, here we go, you know, off to the races, gonna, there he goes again. But there is so much, this is so rich in instruction for you and I. The application, I mean, there are things you got to kind of think about, oh, how does that apply to me? No, so much of this in the Gospel of John from here forward is so directly applicable to our lives that you don't have to stretch. It's just there, and it's rich, it's beautiful, and I'm really looking forward to going through it with you guys. So with that, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you, Lord, for uh, this great account in your word uh, of, of Lazarus being raised from the dead. And, and Lord, we take hope from this, knowing that you're going to call us. Uh, Lord, it, it, unless we meet with you in the air, which I'll take as well as anybody in this room. And so, Father, I pray that for anyone here that perhaps doesn't have a personal relationship with you, that you would just simply open the door, Lord. Let them choose you, uh, as we've seen here, not be part of the crowd that walks away shaking their head saying no, but saying, yeah, I want a relationship with Jesus and I want you to come into my heart, into my life. So, Lord, if that's their the attitude of their heart. Let them tell somebody after the service. So for the, the rest of us, Father, we, we praise you for the work you're doing in our lives, that we can count on you, that we know, Lord, that you not only bore our infirmities, but you, you bore the grief uh, of our lives. And so we're humbled by that, Father, that Jesus would come and that he would step into a body to, to do more than atone for our sins, but to actually identify with humanity. We thank, we're thankful for that. We're thankful for the work you're doing in our lives. We pray that you would simply cover us with your love and that you would give us a good day. And as we fellowship together, Father, we pray your blessing on that as well. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.